Hello and welcome to Sisters Who Stan, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the stories and shows that made us and explores the questions they've left us asking. I'm Emma. And I'm Bridie. Buckle in as we prepare to celebrate the weird and wonderful world of fandom. Hello. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode, uh, what is this, 15? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, episode 15. Yeah, the penultimate one for series two. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun. Uh, we had a little break last week because we were enjoying the random heat wave uh, and our Easter eggs. Mm-hmm. Did you have a nice Easter party? I did, yeah. I um, did a little Easter hunt for my housemates, but because I feel like there was a shortage of eggs this year. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. Probably the stuck in the Suez Canal or something. But the, <laughs> the, I, as I was hiding them, uh, one of my other housemates had obviously been Easter Bunny 10 minutes before me. So I was also finding them. So oh, it was just quite magical. Nice. Nice. How about you? Yeah. Um, I had a lovely Easter. Um, I actually had a curry, which isn't a traditional Easter meal, um, but had that on the beach because we were having such lovely weather. Mm, um, beach time. Mm-hmm. I also photographed my first wedding since September. Yay! Weddings are back. Nice. Weddings are back. Very exciting. Um, so yeah, it's goodies. back on the menu. <laughs> Where's that from? It's from Lord of the Rings. Oh my god! It is. It's back on the menu, boys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> but weddings um, are back on the menu. Weddings are back nice on the set. menu. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, yeah. So that was that was my Easter. Um, I've been very much enjoying catching up on the Fifth Element, a film oh I hadn't, hadn't watched for a long time, but one we loved when we were younger. Why I was trying to work this out. Why did we watch it so much? Because I feel like I watched it a lot when we were younger. There was very little of it that I didn't like remember did we have a video of it or something oh yeah no we definitely had the video so it came out in 97 so I was eight and you were five Five. but I feel like we consistently watched it quite regularly for quite a few years and we watched it all the time yeah such a Um, random film to have watched so often yeah well also a lot of my friends haven't seen it yeah haven't even like heard of it Mm. I was wondering, do you think, because it's such a cult classic, like if we said to our friends and like listeners, oh, go and watch it before you listen to this episode, like people would enjoy it. Or do you think they'd be like, well, this is really weird. (laughs) I think people would find it weird, but I think they would also really enjoy it. Because when I was rewatching it last night, I tried to just watch a couple of clips, but my heart was like, I need to watch the whole thing again. Um, so I watched the whole film and I was showing some of the sections to my housemate and he loved how it looked. Mm. I showed him the bit where Ruby Rod appears for the first time and he's like, unbelievable. And he was <laughs> like, oh my God, yes. I think people would like it. I've also just realized it would be an incredible secret cinema. Oh my God, so amazing. Yeah, they really need to do that. Um, but we digress. Uh, so the, the title of today's episode is Why We Hate to Love the Fifth Element. Although it feels wrong to use the word hate in the same line as that film. I know. I mean, maybe we should say, why do people 
hate to love the fifth element because I think like we just love it I just love it yeah same straight up just love it but people do love it and hate it it is definitely a bit of a marmite film Mm -hmm. and it had very mixed reviews the wall street journal called it gibberish uh the new york times said it was terribly shrill uh time out said it was a messy narrative which strained to incorporate far too many grotesque and eccentric characters these people have no artistic vision i know its budget was 90 million uh, and it did do well it did 263 at the box office and nice also the film is set in the year 2263 what no coincidence yeah it sounds like one (laughs) (laughs) well do you want to tell everyone very briefly what the film is about um if you can give a quick overview yeah, sure. So the year is 2,263 and Corbin Dallas is a taxi driver played by Bruce Willis, um, but he's also ex-military. So he's the classic kind of retired cop vibe. Mm-hmm. Standard. Classic. Um, he's living in this futuristic New York. And then alongside meeting him, we also find out that there are these four elements, earth, fire, wind and water. I mean, I would say... That's quite universal, those elements. Yes. <laughs> yes I don't think we, we find that out in the film. No, you're, you're quite right. We don't. Um, <laughs> okay, look. Basically, at the beginning of the film, it's in like 1914, and they get this warning that every 5,000 years, evil is unleashed. And in order to fight it, they need to assemble the four elements, which are these four magical stones, mm-hmm. around a fifth element. And the fifth element will be this supreme being who will defeat evil. So mm-hmm. fast forward to New York. 2263 and guess what evil arrives (laughs) and it's in the form of this massive bubbly planet which can make phone calls Mm -hmm. um and it you know lots of different people are trying to get their hands on the stones and on the fifth element um and yeah bruce willis is basically helping these priests round up the elements and they end up on a cruise ship in space Hmm. is the broad brush stroke (laughs) Mm, it's a lot it is a lot um but the fifth element ends up being a lady in the form of Mila Jovovich, which, and you know, she looks so good. <laughs> yes, she does. Welcome Lilu to the film. I mean, the whole thing is such a visual treat. Uh, the futuristic New York. And actually, I don't think they did use a lot of CGI, but what they did like holds up so well, considering the film was over 20 years ago. Yeah, definitely. It doesn't look dreadful. And it kind of looks right in the world that they've created. Mm-hmm. Um, so the production design is by Jean Girard and Jean-Claude Mezzery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mezzery used to do comics. And he had a bit of a falling out with George Lucas because the Star Wars films were really heavily inspired by the aesthetic of his work. Oh, really? And apparently the director of The Fifth Element said something like, I want to work with you, but I want to pay you for your work, implying that George Lucas had just stolen ideas. Mm, I didn't know that. And the costume design is by Jean-Paul Gaultier. Fabulous. Who I only actually know from Sex and the City, but still. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I just know that he's a very famous, fabulous designer. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, the outfits, oh, they're so gleefully over the top. I mean, as Mm. with the whole film. Yeah. The director said that he wanted to avoid this grey steel corridor look and present a more Mm. colourful version of the future which I think he certainly does 
Mm. Yeah, well, I was watching a behind-the-scenes documentary, uh, and in it he said, I wanted to create a version of the future that wasn't all dark, because so much mm. dystopian, you know, futuristic stuff is that way. Um, you know, like Black Mirror, which I do also love. But yeah, this has a really different feel. Mm, it's got a personality. Mm, yeah. When you were going back to look at the film, what are the scenes that like stand out to you or that are seared into your memory? So I, I mean, obviously the most famous scene is when the diva is singing and Lilu is fighting. so great because she goes from this like operatic thing to being like kind of funky yeah it's like hip Um, opera yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then she and and then it's kind of cut to Lilu fighting them Mm. and you also see this change happening in Corbin Dallas and they slowly zoom in on Bruce Willis's beautiful green eyes. Mm. I think just the combination of all those things is very fabulous. Mm. I also love the whole sequence with Ruby Rod and Dallas kind of like fighting the baddies together. Oh yeah. Well, any scene with Ruby Rod is... Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. And there's that bit where they're trying to get past them and he's like, count down from 10 and they're running under the pool table and Ruby's like, 10, 9, 8, <laughs> just weeping. <laughs> Do you know it was the uh, it was the biggest indoor explosion uh, in filmmaking at the time? Oh, really? Well, it looks wonderful. But do you know what I was thinking when I was watching it? I was like, all films in the '90s or all action films. Certainly, I feel like every film with Bruce Willis has a bomb at some point. Oh yeah, it's big, it, it's, you got and it's got to have a big clock that counts. It, down. Yeah, I was, it was so funny because when Ruby notices the the bomb, he's like, "What? What is this?" I was what? like, "Oh, I was like, oh god, I haven't actually seen a countdown bomb in a film for a really long time." <laughs> but it was so big in the nineties, wasn't it? I feel like they were a big anxiety. Yeah, I have a lot of feelings about the characters in it. Like I've just got so many notes about the characters, really. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when I was trying to think about my favorite parts of the film for the podcast Mm. and like what makes it so great, it kind of what I ended up writing down just ended up being a character list. Yeah. Um, It's really the characters that make it so marvelous. Oh my God. They're just, yeah. Sorry. Go on. (laughs) Well, okay. So obviously we should probably start with Ruby Rod because he is such a great character, a world unto himself. (laughs) <laughs> and you probably read that the role was originally intended for Prince. Um, mm-hmm. you might have come across that in your research. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes in the whole film uh, is where the plane is taking off. Oh my God. Yeah, you know the one. And he's. Um, I know the scene. <laughs> he's paying some attention to the, uh, the air stewardess. Uh, I found that so sexy when I was little. <laughs> and I remember being like, what is this feeling? <laughs> Yeah. And I love how the air studesses are in these, like, I don't know, they look like those outfits came off the sail rack in Anne Summers. Yeah. Yeah. So much. It, they must have inspired Britney Spears' toxic video because it's almost exactly the same outfit. Yeah. I really hope commercial space travel looks like that. Me too. I feel like as a feminist, I should have a problem with their outfits, but I can't help but kind of love it. Oh, they look great. They look so good. But yeah, so I love that sequence. And it did actually occur to me, wouldn't it have been such a different vibe if like the roles were reversed and like she was attending to him during the takeoff? Because then Mm. it almost becomes porny, but I'm not sure why. 
Yeah, it's, it would be really different. That's true. Mm. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, like even if they were just having sex, it would be weird. But because of the act that they're doing, like for some reason, it still kind of makes it all fun and silly. I know what you mean. It would feel different. There are quite a lot of um, different opinions about Ruby Rod and whether that character is good or bad or whatever. Okay, yeah, go on. I mean, look, I love Ruby Rod. Um, but it's important to, think, you know, mm-hmm. expose myself to other opinions. Um, but if I read one article. Yeah, I must. And someone was sort of saying one of the things that's not good about that character. So it's an article by Tristan Young and it says... The film wrongly and paniculously tries to establish a correlation between non-traditional and gender orientations and sexual predation so that he's a bit predatory. Hmm. Okay. All right. And, and, you know, it's kind of like the stereotype that people who are part of the LGBTQ community are also kind of threatening. Um, But I would say that I think everyone's pretty enamored with him. And I didn't find those scenes where he's flirting with women. It didn't feel that predatory. Mm. Um, what I did have a problem with was when Corbin Dallas kisses Lulu when she's asleep. <laughs> mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that bit has not aged well. It hasn't, but even so. Mm. Though, if Bruce Willis in a tangerine tank top wanted to kiss me while I'm asleep, from a totally personal, just my perspective, is I'd just like him to know that that would be okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Glad, glad you cleared that up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still digesting what that article was saying about Ruby because it's never actually confirmed that he's bi or pan, is it? Because obviously we look at him as a character and love that we, you know, we assume he's a member of that community. But actually in the film, we only ever see him behaving like sexually, heteronormatively, right? Mm, Yeah. Although I read a few different articles which were talking about him definitely being kind of like queer coded. Mm, right okay so like he presents lots of traits that that are attributed to the lgbtq community Mm. um also at one point he says something to one of the attendees that he's getting with he says like yeah i've never felt this way before about you know with a human which implies that he's been sexual with different species um and you know in the galaxy it it probably you know different aliens probably don't have the same genders as humans um so there's a fluidity there but People were saying that the way that he reacts to Dallas as well, like he's like, ooh, this man's on fire. It's definitely kind of just part of his performance, but the way that they link arms, it feels not necessarily like there's an actual sexual interest, but a minor, I don't know, attractional like appreciation maybe. Mm. Yeah, I suppose that is true. I do wonder like when the film came out, what was the reaction within the LGBTQ community like about that character at the time? Well, I found an article on a website called Fanboys of the Universe, uh, and the article is called The Fifth Element, Queering the Cosmos. And it talks quite positively about Ruby Rod, but it also um, just talks about the tone of the whole film. Let me just Mm. find a quote. Hang on. So it says, it isn't that the film has prominent queer characters. The main players all present as primarily heterosexual, although only Corbin Dallas appears to be definitely so. It isn't that the film touches on the themes of oppression. Stripped of its flourishes, the primary conflict appears to be a fairly simple yet wickedly efficient save the world story. Mm. Instead, there's something intangible about the film itself, as if there's queerness coded into its DNA. It's part of a larger experience. It isn't the film's primary reason for being, but it's most certainly present. Mm. And then it talks about the artists who worked on it and 
about the kind of core of the story. It, it says um, that the story is centered on themes of an optimistic kind of humanism that embraces diversity and more importantly, sexuality and sexual equality. Oh, I love that. Mm, yeah, so Fanboys of the Universe is great. Uh, they say that they celebrate the LGBTQ fan community and bring a gay perspective on pop culture. Well, I will definitely check them out. Mm. But there are, you know, differing opinions online and it would be interesting to talk to more people about that character. Mm. I really love what they were saying about queerness being coded into the DNA of the film because, like, it definitely feels that way. Like, it feels so wonderfully camp and queer. Mm, Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Because the sexual bits with Ruby Rod, like, they're so randomly out of place where he just suddenly starts whispering but it's so (laughs) comic book-esque and so over the top that it's just I don't know like for me it doesn't feel predatory it just feels otherworldly like a cartoon I don't know Mm, yeah everybody's so into him as well like I don't know I mean it's it's probably inappropriate like because of his status and maybe it is someone wanted attention but I feel like mostly people seem pretty delighted and thrilled and starstruck (laughs) I mean, I would be. <laughs> yeah, same. Uh, I've actually got a really long quote about Ruby Rod from a, a, an article. Well, I'm sitting comfortably. <laughs> well, I'll begin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's from an article that I came across when researching this episode, and it's called 20 Years On. The Fifth Element is still one of the best slash worst sci-fi films ever by Emmett Asher Perrin. And it said... People can choose to quibble with the character's construction or depiction, which certainly comes with its own pitfalls and debatable points. But when all is said and done, there has never been a male character in an action-filled blockbuster who was more openly flamboyant, transgressive, and enveloped in queer codification than Ruby Rod. That filmmakers have been so afraid to emulate that bold choice makes Ruby special, but it's impossible not to criticise his lonely status in cinema. Mm, I love that. Yeah. It would be really interesting to hear more opinions. I, like, I couldn't find many people that didn't like him, to be honest. Well, I mean, how could you not? Hard not to. Yeah, and massive props to Chris Tucker for, you know, taking on that role when he, he wouldn't have known how it was going to turn out. And I don't think it was something he'd really done before in that area. Mm, yeah. I was watching an interview with him and it really made me laugh because the contrast between the clothes he's wearing in that interview and the clothes <laughs> he's wearing in the film like could not have been greater. Mm. Uh, he actually did a great uh, Reddit, Ask Me Anything. Uh, and he said that on the first day of filming, Bruce Willis made him quite nervous because he came up to him, like looked at the outfit he was in and apparently said, uh, do you know this could ruin your career? And then, and, then Whoa. The, and then the director just sort of yelled action. And then he was like, okay. <laughs> That's a bit of a dick move. I mean, who knows what tone that was said in. It was maybe like, a, he was probably jokey, right? I've got no idea. I don't know Bruce Willis. It man. better have been. But there were lots of stories about Bruce Willis around that time of like, he's obviously a fantastic actor and he's so good in this. But like, so the actor who's the assistant to... You know, the one with like the fryer tuck haircut. Oh my God, I absolutely love the fryers. They're so good. Mm-hmm. Charlie Creed Miles, uh, the actor who's the assistant to the priest. Um, the one with like the fryer tuck haircut. David, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He said that the day before Bruce came on set, everyone said that there were some rules. So like no one's allowed to look him in the eye or initiate conversation like, unless he speaks to you first. Ooh. And he said, mm, I was a bit miffed by that. 
but you do you hear those stories from sets don't you and I do wonder is that the actor setting those rules or is it like their people yeah to make them seem like big deals yeah because would as would you really say nobody talked to me I mean maybe you'd have to at some stage because otherwise everyone talks to you <laughs> maybe I it's mean, the only option I think that's a pretty horrible thing to set down but maybe he was just I don't know god having a bad old day <laughs> yeah I think I don't know part of me wonders if it's necessary because I don't know once you get to a certain level of fame I mean but unfortunately it does make you seem like a dick um but that's why they have agents so they can seem like the dick but also these people are your peers they're not just some you know they're not just fans outside your trailer that's very true they're your peers who you're working with I think that they should be fucking allowed to speak to you in the face I think Mm. it's mad if that's what they you know (laughs) that's something he enforced yeah that's true I do, yeah, I know what you're saying though. There does need to be lines drawn in the sand because obviously some people have, you know, very intense fans and like, I'm always sympathetic when I hear that so-and-so is not a nice person. Like mm-hmm. I hear Rowan Atkinson's not a nice person. I'm like, you know, is he a not nice person or was he having dinner with his family and someone was like, can I get a picture? And he was just like, no, because, mm-hmm. you know, fame can be quite a cursed chalice, can't it? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's like, it's obviously good for loads of reasons and I'm only mildly sympathetic about it, but you know, it would suck not to have privacy anymore. So I guess they have to be quite strict with boundaries or something. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And in Bruce Willis's defense, uh, he did take a pay cut for the film cause he really liked the script. Um, mm. I mean, I say pay cut, we're probably still talking quite big money. <laughs> Millions. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm very glad the role went to him because it was going to go to Mel Gibson. No, Mel. No, Mel. Stick to playing roosters. That's, <laughs> that's what you're best at. <laughs> yeah. I do love, I love um, Bruce Willis in it. I think he's great. And Corbin Dallas is such a great character. Like, one of my favourite aesthetics is his look with that tangerine top. I know I'm obsessed with that. I've mentioned it so many times, <laughs> but it looks, he looks so hot in it. <laughs> but then also, like, his apartment, the fact that he's a cat mm. man really appeals to me and the way his apartment lights up and it has like such a strange like he's got fish in this like tiny cupboard apartment he's a huge fish tank yeah um yeah i love it yeah actually one of my favorite sequences is when he's hiding people in his apartment yeah he hides lilu in this in the the military in the fridge lilu in the shower and that guy in his bed (laughs) yeah oh it's so good I really remember the apartment appealing to me um, and also the bedroom where they're on the cruise ship because it's like they can just press a button and that gets them to sleep. Mm. Yeah. And as someone who struggles to get to sleep, I was like, wow, that looks great. Yeah. That's what I want from the future. What it was really reminding me of, just to give people a visual reference for the cruise, um, like it's full of all these rich people and it has a bit of a Met Gala vibe. Oh, Yeah. Because, you know, at the Met Gala, everyone has those fabulous outfits that are quite strange. Mm. Um, there's also that energy. Also, I have a note that says, Lee Evans? <laughs> Exclamation point, question mark. Where's Lee Evans in it? Lee Evans is like the person who welcomes the diva to her room. And then is the one who's like in charge of loads of the shipmate crew. And <clears throat> Corbin Dallas is like, do you want me to go and negotiate? And he's like, yeah, I think that would be best. <laughs> Oh my God, that is Lee Evans. 
such that a crazy a, combination. That is a random casting. Yeah. <laughs> Although very 90s. Mm, very 90s. Another thing that I thought was quite 90s um, was, did you, did you watch any of the backstage stuff? No, I read a bit of backstage gossip, but that was it. Okay, well, so the director at the time of filming genuinely looks like a backstreet boy. <laughs> um, his hair, you know, what's it called when they've got, um, he's got the tips of his hair highlighted. Oh, lovely. Mm-hmm. And that's how he's looking in interviews. And I was just it's like... Frosting. Oh, yeah. Frosted he's got, tips. Mm, he's got frosted tips. And I was like, oh, yeah. Beautiful. Reading more about the director um, took me down some dark roads. Mm-hmm. And he sounds like quite a complicated character. Mm, yeah one of the kind of behind the scenes things that I discovered um I, you know on the one hand like you can't help you fall in love with but he was when they started filming he was married to Maywin Lebesco who plays the diva mm. and like throughout the filming he broke up with her and he was getting with Lilu, um which is kind of a bit I don't know it just must have fucking sucked because everyone spends the whole film being like She's the supreme being. Oh yeah, like she's perfect. Yeah, and then you you get put in this great big blue, I don't know, silicon suit. Mm, yeah, it have to be cut open. Yeah, it just doesn't feel good knowing mm, that. No, not at all. And I know that, you know, actors and directors falling in love is a tale as old as time. But mm. even so, like when you think about them having this divine language on set, which only they spoke and them having these like secret conversations together it just feels really like oh it's so fuck off isn't it (laughs) yeah and you just think and it is like impressive because she speaks so well in the film like she is really convincing yeah she does but you can just imagine being so like excluded Mm. um like his wife feeling just crap and knowing from day dot Mm, yeah you would just know Mm. yeah he doesn't seem like a particularly uh good i don't know similarly i found out lots of um really disturbing things and discovered that there's been some really horrible allegations about him from lots of actresses so that was really upsetting to discover Mm, what a fucker yeah it sucks when people you admire turn out to be creeps yeah it does it just feels like something that we uh have to deal with on a day-to-day basis (laughs) it feels like it happens in everything i know Every Um, piece of art ever created. mm, Oh dear. But Mila is brilliant as Lilu. We've got to give her that. Oh, she's so good as Lilu. Yeah. I I do love her, that and that character. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, Although one thing that people don't like about Lilu is that she's this born sexy yesterday trope, which Mm -hmm. was a phrase I hadn't heard of until I watched this video by the pop culture detective, um, which we'll link to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But to give a quick summary of what it is, basically Born Sexy Yesterday is often applied to female characters. And it's a really prevalent trope in a lot of fantasy and sci-fi worlds. It usually involves the male hero meeting some woman who's from another species and, you know, she's or she's other in some way. Um, Usually she can't speak his language and she's quite innocent of the world he's from. Um, And it's basically a childlike mind in a very sexy grown up woman body. Uh, and the male protagonist ends up, you know, teaching her the ways of the world. Yeah, it's sort of putting the behaviour of a young 
child um, into these bodies of female characters that like exude sex appeal. Mm, yeah. And like usually despite their inexperience, she's often supreme or godly in some other way and has a skill that men value like fighting. Um, but because she's so innocent, she doesn't know that her body's sexual. So she often like takes her clothes off in front of men. Uh, and she doesn't know what a kiss is, so he must teach her the ways of the body. And yeah. it's a really uncomfortable trope. <laughs> yeah, and it also romanticizes the idea of the untouched woman with no sexual history. Mm, yeah, like purity. Ugh, that kind of trope. <laughs> we see it a bit in Star Trek splash Forbidden Planet. Uh, there are a few examples of it. Mm, and Tron is a big one too. One of the things um, that the pop culture detective, this guy called Jonathan, talks about in the video is that the male protagonist is usually someone who doesn't feel like he's appreciated in the world of ordinary women. Right. And so it kind of panders to this real masculine insecurity by sort of eliminating competition. Mm. Uh, it actually kind of reminds me of Miranda in The Tempest. Like, the good thing about this woman is that she doesn't know any other men. So obviously you're the best man she's ever met. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there are some male equivalents. So Edward Scissorhands, for example. Although I think that the woman who preys on him isn't like the hero of the story. Right, yeah. And then there's also um, Brendan Fraser, who's had a bit of a renaissance recently, which I'm really happy about because I think he is gorgeous. <laughs> so dreamy. Yeah, just classically beautiful. But him in George of the Jungle has like a similar vibe and it but although it tends to be in those stories, and this is what Jonathan says, is that the women fall in love with them despite their innocence rather than because of it. Yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, the No Film School podcast wrote a piece about that trope. Uh, and on their Facebook feed, it had a lot of angry comments from men being like, oh, born sexy yesterday, it's just fantasy. Men know it's not real kind of thing. Mm. And I was trying to figure out where I stood on that because... Obviously, with Lilu, having a childlike mind inside a sexy body is really problematic. But then, you know, are fantasies generally uh, immune to morality? Like, pff, I honestly don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I feel quite conflicted. Like, I think lots of people are able to see the difference between a fantasy and a reality. Mm. But then, you know, romanticizing young minds and sexy adult bodies is a, quite a creepy trope. Mm -hmm. And I, I just wonder if it does some damage somewhere, especially if it pops up a lot. Also, the sexualization of children and innocence is a problem in society. And with these kinds of ideas, when they're perpetuated in movies, I don't know, like, does it aggravate that problem or? Yeah, I, I exactly. I, I am in no way qualified to answer <laughs> that question. I feel but like, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure. And also, it's not like in The Fifth Element, it's counteracted with loads of other, you know, rounded female characters. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, just thinking about it, it brings up the question about the balance between censoring art with protecting people from harmful ideas and tropes. And yeah, which is a question and an issue we find coming up a lot. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer at all. Um, but one thing I will say about Lilu is that she doesn't, for me, she doesn't entirely fit that trope because she does know what a kiss is. And, you know, she almost shoots him in the head when he kisses her and she says, never without my permission. So. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I suppose she's, because she is so physically capable, you do feel like she could 
take on Corbin physically in a fight, which I don't know if that changes the dynamic, but it's all so tricky. Mm. Um, I was interested in what Mila had to say about the character and I couldn't find too much, but she did describe her uh, as a mix between a lion cub, a bird and an Ewok. So Mm. that's interesting. I don't think that seems particularly, I don't know. (laughs) Insightful sounds like a rude thing to say, but Mm. yeah, (laughs) sorry. I think she's fantastic in it. I'm, but I'm glad that I didn't know those were the, things she was playing with when she was performing it yeah and I mean do you think maybe if there was more of the female gaze in the film I mean all of the male outfits are fantastic and like we haven't even spoken about Zorg uh Gary Oldman oh what is the voice he's doing what's the accent he's like a southern oil well owner in America yes or like he owns the latest locomotive um yeah, I love that character. It makes me really sad that he didn't want to be in the film or like that he doesn't like it. I know. And apparently whenever anyone like points out to him that it's a cult classic, he's just kind of like, yeah, that's the wacky world we live in. Like, Gary, it's a great film. Get on board, Gary. One thing I find really interesting is how Gary, uh, like <laughs> Gary, how Zorg <laughs> and Dallas don't know about each other. Like they don't know really that each other exist. Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. They kind of know-ish, but they never encounter each other. So like the main protagonists and the main antagonists don't ever meet. Mm, That's very true. I hadn't thought about that at all. I wonder if that was intentional because, I don't know, some parts of the plot are... um, (laughs) There are some plot holes. Yeah. Mm. I did find it amusing that Lilu only comes across war when she gets into the W's of her like... Um, computer thing <laughs> oh yeah because I was like surely she must have come across violence in V mm. um, you know <laughs> yeah yeah the plot holes are numerous and deep and I'm not interested in them to be honest no the whole film just feels like a glorious Eurovision entry yeah it does you know with Zorg Ruby Rod Lilu, all of these wild characters I had this sudden recognition when watching it, like, oh my God, Bruce Willis is the equivalent of Michael Caine in The Muppets. <laughs> He's like the peak normal. He is. He's playing such a straight character and around him are all of these larger than life ones, but it works so well. <laughs> Do you know what I find funny? Sorry, I'm going all, all over the place. You know when she's like, the stones are in me. Yeah. And Bruce Willis spends like a minute trying to decode that message. He's like, the stones are in me. Wait a minute, Ruby. The stones are in me. And it's like, yeah, she's just said the stones are in her. <laughs> it's a really literal phrase. <laughs> it's literal. Get your hand in her tummy. <laughs> anyway. I don't know. I think it's fair he takes a minute for that. Because wouldn't you be like, is this a metaphor? Do I actually have <laughs> you to You wouldn't want to steam ahead and just like, no, shove your hand in her open you wound. rummage around. No. <laughs> no, that was a, ugh, that was a metaphor. metaphor. She's <laughs> also, yeah, she's also dying. So there is no time for metaphors. So that's all. There isn't. But she isn't it. giving him a metaphor. <laughs> she's literally telling him. Yeah. Well, I have another question for you that I was thinking as Ooh. I was just watching the film and, you know, coming to a close with it. Uh, do you think, is the universe ever going to look how it does in The Fifth Element, like, and Star Wars, many years from now? 
so sadly i think that it's such a boring ending as just like and it's really predictable i think humanity will all kill itself before we manage to get to that level of cool i see <laughs> okay sorry <laughs> i think we'll burn the ice caps we'll eat the polar bears right and we will kill our species but if okay. we were behaving um, no. better it's a firm no but if we were cooler and we would you know listening to greta <laughs> doing right. the right things we might be able to, i think it would look because they do live above this big fog don't they which implies something's gone wrong with earth below yeah Maybe okay that's what we'll have to do sorry turned it into a climate change thing which sorry is really <laughs> boring well okay i'll re i'll reposition that question then because i understand what you're saying about earth although i don't know i'm quite quietly optimistic but I am optimistic. I just, we can't last forever as a species because yeah. it doesn't, not into the year 2259 or whatever it oh, is. Oh, we'll probably, maybe we'll be all right around then. But like in the year 4000, like we were only, we're, we're such a dot in the time of, yeah. And I'm the one who gets panic attacks thinking about this. <laughs> but it is just like, we, we've mm-hmm. only just arrived and we're, we'll probably go at some point. Yeah. All right. I'm going to rephrase the question then. Sorry. Do you think that... <laughs> The, the world that we see in star wars and the world that mm-hmm. we see in fifth element already exists somewhere in the universe oh i hope so i hope so too so love to hate hate to love well mm-hmm. i don't i don't hate to love it i think i just love it i mean i appreciate problematic parts and problematic creators yeah there are and i also think that comedy sci-fi is a very specific genre and one that not everybody loves Mm. but i do love it films like men in black and galaxy quest for me comedy works so well because so much of sci-fi is really serious Mm. yeah what's not to love also i think i've said on this podcast before but one of my favorite qualities in people are those who don't take themselves too seriously and i think this film like this film just does not take itself seriously no not at all yeah definitely um there's a quote about contradictions in the film and it sort of summarizes why people love it and why it's kind of tricky to categorize as well or for people Mm. to agree on which i thought was quite good um it's from an article by emmett ashton perrin and it says it's a story about a woman who was created to save the universe but she can only manage it if a man will tell her that he loves her it's a film that extols the average Joe masculinity of men like Bruce Willis and then counters it with some of the queerest, unmacho, gender-bending male co-stars that have ever been seen in a blockbuster. It's a tale about the folly of humanity in creating the means of its own destruction, but still relies on the presence of an absolute evil to bring about total annihilation. These contradictions make it a strange film to critique. Focusing on any one of these aspects can result in a massively different reading of the film. Mm, yeah, it is a film full of contradictions. Absolutely. Like with the characters, mm. none of them are all good or all bad. Mm. Like Ruby Rod, he's there at the end trying to help them with the stones. And the priest knocks out Dallas and steals his tickets. Like it's all kind of confusing, but they're great characters. And like, I do get that the storyline's a bit naff or a bit straightforward. Mm. It is a bit naff. (laughs) I I think it's just the visual treat of the world and the performances. It just completely Mm. makes up for it. Yeah. And just one last thing I'll say is I feel like that film really just helped me 
understand the breadth of who I'm attracted to because mm-hmm. I was like I saw I, the confusing feeling I fancy Corbin Dallas I also fancy Ruby Rod uh-huh. and I fancy Mila Djokovic yeah it's <laughs> like well there you go there you go it's like a pansexual's dream isn't it it is <laughs> everyone's beautiful and fabulous yeah 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 exactly so Very. why people hate to hate to love it I mean you came to the wrong door. I mean, we put the sign up, but we just love it here. <laughs> we we put the sign you. up. Total clickbait title. That's what yeah. this was. <laughs> um, tell us what you think. Do you love the fifth element? Do you find its representations of women problematic? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And we'll see you next week for the final of series two. Woohoo! Whoop, whoop. See you then. Bye-bye for now.